Isn't it just time that we look at oil and gas taxes? Uh, We're getting little from taxes from petroleum and gas. Is that something that the government should be looking at now? I think that if you look at uh, what the Treasurer has said over the last few days, he's examining those type of options. And again, that'll be uh, in the mix of things uh, that he thinks through. Um, I think the bigger focus long term is the price mechanism. And again, I noticed the free advice from Angus Taylor yesterday saying, well, the answer to all this, and I think you referenced this earlier, the answer to all this is more supply. And the issue, the issue is, one, it'll take ages to get that supply into the system, Patricia, like by the time you get all that worked up. And two, what, what would we have? I mean, the coalition are demonstrating themselves to be a, a tool of the gas companies here, arguing a line that they want, more supply. So what? They can then do what I said earlier, which is get that volume, offer it locally at, at prices way more than what they would offer in the international market just to put local buyers off so they can then flog that off into an export market uh, at a price that, that satisfies the, the greed that we're seeing. This is not a shortage of supply problem. This is a glut of greed problem that has to be basically short-circuited and common sense prevail. OK, let's go with your glut of greed line. Federal Minister for Industry, Ed Husick, pushing his narrative on the willing and compliant ABC, interviewed there by Patricia Cavellis on RN Breakfast Radio. The minister seems to think that more gas projects will magically come about following government price caps and reservations. Patricia Cavellis is clearly on side with the higher taxes concept. Husick takes issue with more supply because it will supposedly take ages and then, in his words, be flogged off to an export market, and then states there is not a shortage of supply problem, but a glut of greed problem. Firstly, Minister, it takes ages to develop a resources project, partly because your policies stand in the way. You design it that way. Secondly, all that extra supply can't be flogged off to export markets if the facilities are at capacity. If your LNG plant is operating at 110% capacity, it physically can't export more gas. That extra gas then becomes excess to exports and is sold locally. If there is more excess gas from all the suppliers, the local gas gets cheaper. Thirdly, your statement, not a shortage, may be correct right now, but every report from the Gas Statement of Opportunities, the Gas Supply and System Adequacy Risks Report, the National Gas Infrastructure Plan, Victorian Gas Planning Report, ACCC Gas Inquiry, all these reports explicitly mention coming gas shortages caused by increased gas fire generation, increased demand from cold winters, and declining supply from the southern gas fields off Victoria. James Balderstone of Santos warned about this all the way back in 2013. Matt Chambers in The Australian, April 10th, 2013. Santos is continuing its push for coal seam gas in New South Wales in the face of growing opposition, warning that a failure to develop resources could result in substantial gas and power price increases, manufacturing job losses and increased greenhouse gas emissions. In a speech to be delivered at an Australian Domestic Gas Outlook conference in Sydney today, Santos East Coast Gas Chief James Balderstone will announce that gas from the company's Narrabri project in New South Wales will not be targeted at the company's big CSG export plant in Queensland, but will instead be saved for New South Wales customers. There has been a lot of negative media around the industry, and people have lost sight of the importance of natural gas, that it is a fuel of the future, and that it supplies 25% of Australia and New South Wales' energy requirements, Mr Balderstone said yesterday ahead of his presentation. Long-term supply contracts in New South Wales, which imports 95% of its gas, roll off in the next few years, which is about the same time as $70 billion of Gladstone coal seam gas exports, which will triple Australian East Coast gas demand, start to ramp up. 
Queensland is going to become the main centre of gas demand and New South Wales' own gas reserves will be important to balance its own gas supply and the East Coast market, Mr. Balderton, Mr. Balderstone said. Risks associated with failing to develop gas resources include substantial increases in household gas and electricity prices, manufacturing job losses and increased environmental issues. So if this was topical in 2013, nearly 10 years later, it's also pretty topical. As a result of the war on natural gas and this obsession with renewables, the world's actually going to burn more coal in 2022 than it ever has before. Keep in mind that it was just last fall that the various European countries and other countries in the world got together in Scotland and insisted that African nations should not use fossil fuels. In fact, it was the International Energy Agency that said that no more investments should be made in fossil fuels. And as a result of the underinvestment in natural gas, the world has been reverting to coal. Almost 10 years later, and Michael Schellenberger at the CPAC conference is telling the same story. Amazing coincidence? I think not. Could anyone have foreseen this coming? Well, it was foreseen back in 2013. It's on the public record. So what's Mr. Husick's involvement in the gas sector or industry in particular? From his Wikipedia page... In the 1990s, Husick worked as a research officer for the member for Chifley, Roger Price. Husick was first elected as a branch organiser in 1997. In 1998, he was elected as vice president of the communications division of the CEPU, the Communications Electrical and Plumbing Union of Australia. From 1999 to 2003, he worked for Integral Energy as a communications manager. In July 2006, he became the secretary of the communications division of the Communications Electrical and Plumbing Union of Australia. He was the national president of the Communications Electrical and Plumbing Union of Australia before being elected to federal parliament. Mr Husick is currently the Minister for Industry and Science in the Albanese government. I urge Mr Husick to read or watch Michael Schellenberger, Bjorn Lomberg, Alex Epstein. Just have a look at what their output is and see if you can disagree with it. Here's Schellenberger again. Renewables, they just can't power a high energy society. You can see here that energy remains tightly coupled to GDP. So there is no poor high energy country, just as there is no rich low energy country. Samantha McCulloch is the chief executive of the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, which represents gas producers. Samantha McCulloch, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, David. So the industry minister says the problem with gas prices right now is a glut of greed by the gas companies. Is he right? David, what we're seeing is high energy prices across, across the globe. This is the result of a global energy crisis triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's affecting all energy sources and it's affecting all countries. But can you explain to me why that should push, push up the price of Australian gas in Australia? We're seeing very strong demand for gas domestically. This is being driven by a critical role that gas is playing, particularly in the electricity sector. Gas is increasingly being called on to fill the void when renewables are not available and when coal-fired generation is not available. We saw this over the recent winter when gas demand increased 55% in May versus May last year. It's increasing demand for gas that's driving up these, these prices, as well as, of course, international pressures. And the key to driving down these prices and putting sustained downward pressure on gas prices is increasing supply. That's what the industry is seeking to do. But we need a clear runway 
for more investment to boost supply and put downward pressure on prices. Well, this week, Samantha McCulloch, CEO of the gas industry lobby APPEA, was interviewed on the ABC's 7.30 report by David Spears. It was a challenging interview for Samantha as she struggled with some of the questions. For example, the claim that gas demand was 55% greater in May 2022 than winter 2021. It's true that there was a big pickup in gas-fired power generation in Queensland following the catastrophic failure of the generator at Calide C4. But apart from that, we only see the normal summer and winter changes, even when you compare the Victorian gas demand. Personally, I'd like to see a couple of the other CEOs involved. Tony Noonan of Shell, Kevin Gallagher of Santos, Frank Calabria of Origin. I'd like to see them in the hot seat. But I guess you need to get something out of the uh, APM membership, right? And one of the benefits of that is avoiding the limelight and letting the lobby group do what it's paid to do. Spears asked McCulloch about confidential details of commercial contracts. Even though it's a tough call to be asked about details you're not privy to, and would not be allowed to comment on anyway, I think there's better responses than this one by Samantha. I'm focused on the wholesale market because that's where the gas producers are supplying into. And the realised average price for gas sold in the wholesale market 90% of which is sold under long-term contracts, is priced between $6 and $12 a gigajoule. Well, that was probably that's on contracts written before this price spike, though, right? That's the average price being realised in third quarter this year. What's being that's offered now, though? That's between July and September, and presumably contracts that predate what's happened with the gas price. What's being offered now? So, David, this is where we need far more transparency in the market. Can't you tell because us? Because we're seeing... Well, we're seeing uh, claims of, of very high prices being offered in the market, but there's well, no don't you know? details around that. Why don't you know? No, this is reported to the ACCC. We'll get more details of this, but there will be a delay. I think, Samantha, uh, a better response towards the end there when Spears was hammering you for why don't you know what the gas prices are or what the contract details of the contracts are is that you're the CEO of the lobby group. You don't sell gas and therefore you do not know what the prices are. Spears continued the interview by sensationalising LNG company profits. And by doing this, Spears is not really after solutions or discussion. Most LNG profits come from overseas customers on their long-term contracts, which make up 85% of the sales. The much smaller domestic market is contributing relatively little to these profits. Profits are a cycle anyway. Nobody saw David Spears asking LNG companies about losses as global lockdowns drove resource prices into the ground. He hasn't asked about the $100 billion investment that created these industries with the thousands of jobs and billions in royalties that are just starting to pay back this investment to the owners. And let's face it, profits are the only reason these projects, with their immense upfront costs and huge risks, ever get off the ground in the first place. Can you tell me how much uh, have the profits of the LNG exporters grown uh, since the war in Ukraine? David, what I can tell you is that the strong demand for our LNG exports is delivering returns for Australian budgets and the Australian people. What, I'm asking we... about the profits for the companies, though. There are estimates it's around $26 billion in profit growth. I don't have an estimate for individual companies. They report this on a quarterly basis. But what I can say is that we're seeing more returns to the Australian people in the budget in well, state government budgets, in, in the Commonwealth to budget, be clear on in last that, month's the, budget. The petroleum resource rent tax uh, this financial year is returning very little, uh, $2.6 billion, and that's barely moved from uh, before the, the gas price spike. The so is that really fair given the sort of profits that are estimated to be $26 billion in profit growth? The petroleum resource rent tax is projected to provide $11 billion to the federal government budget in the, the forward estimates. What are profits Just to over be four clear, years? this what is only... Profits over four years? If you want to this is already figure. a profits-based tax. 
uh, of at least 40%. And it's just one aspect of the financial contribution of the industry to government revenues. Why can't you tell this... us the profits they're raking in? Look, I'm, I'm representing the industry. The, the, these are international companies too, of course, David. But what I can tell you is the direct contribution that we're making to the Australian governments and to Australian people will triple this year, according to our estimates. That okay. includes royalties, it includes taxes. And, and this is good. This is uh, $9 billion extra in government revenues this year that can help to fund hospitals, schools, paid parental leave. The industry is making an enormous direct contribution to Australian government budgets. And of course, it's enabling, we, uh, according to estimates, around $470 billion in economic activity annually. All right, Samantha McCulloch, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. So they're complaining about the gas price, but in the budget last week, they cut support for more gas supply. They cut support for more gas infrastructure for further delivery in this country. Nationals MP Keith Pitt on Sky News trying to make some sense of the gas royalty, gas reserve topic that's hit the headlines again here in Australia. None of the politicians or activists have been able to provide any clear and balanced commentary on the topics of taxation and royalty payments or even a gas reserve. One side gets an easy run on the usual platforms without any intervention or fact-checking. And one of the main culprits is our old friend at the Australia Institute, who seem to have direct lines of communication into the offices of our most left-wing and anti-Australian politicians. People like Sophie Scomps, David Pocock, Allegra Spender, Monique Ryan, Zali Stegall, Rex Patrick, Ed Husick and Chris Bowen. These people are all over social media, television and the newspapers reading the same scripted lines, that gas companies pay no tax and are profiteering which is pretty close to a defamatory statement. They all parrot the Australia Institute, comparing the oil and gas sectors of Australia and Norway. Alan Kohler blatantly used the same exaggerated and cherry-picked data on his television segment, seemingly proud of his association with the Australia Institute. But Alan, there's a few problems with this analysis. Your charts are in different currency. The Norwegian krona sells for around 0.15 times the Australian dollar, making the Y-axis on the Norway chart much larger values than the Y-axis on the Australian chart. Norway's 2021 oil exports were $50 billion, while Australia's were $7 billion. This exaggerates the taxation received from the oil and gas sector very much in Norway's favour. Gas companies invested $100 billion in Queensland to build the LNG export industry from scratch. These tax receipts are still being claimed against, reducing the tax paid in Australia. Unconventional coal seam gas is more expensive per unit to extract than conventional gas, reducing profits and therefore the taxes paid in Australia. Norway's oil and gas is exported through pipelines, while Australia's gas is exported through more expensive LNG by ship, with Australian petroleum products likewise exported by ship. Even if the Australian oil and gas is sold at the same price as Norway's oil and gas, Norway will see greater profits because of their lower production costs, and higher profits means more tax. Norway's state-owned Equinor produces 70% of all Norway's oil and gas. Equinor pays a dividend and taxes. This inflates the Norwegian government's revenue compared to just taxation and royalties collected in Australia from the private sector. Now, has anybody heard those points explained, those half a dozen basic points, explained in any sensible format? Come on, politicians, get with the program. Greg Brown at The Australian brings the Victorian Premier Dan Landrews into the conversation. From The Australian... Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has called on Anthony Albanese to implement an East Coast gas reservation scheme amid growing splits between governments on how to best bring electricity prices down. 
Mr Andrews said the federal government should back the formation of a West Australian-style reserve which would carve out a percentage of gas production for local users and decouple the domestic market from soaring international prices. We need a national domestic reserve so our gas is for our businesses and our households first, Mr Andrews said. The bit that we don't need, sell that to the world and get the best price you can. We should not be paying European prices when we're not in Europe. Thanks for those stunning technical and economic insights, Mr Andrews. Let's discuss some of the problems with curtailing the exports of the East Coast LNG exporters in Queensland. They are, after all, the only gas exporters on this side of the country. And why this is completely different to the reserve scheme used in Western Australia. First, some questions. If around 85% of the exported gas is locked into long-term contracts, how would a government dip into those exports and prevent those ships being loaded? Are they going to buy the gas? It sounds like a, a lawyer's picnic to me. The reputational impact would be severe too. Which of the customers would miss out? Why would they trust us ever again? How much gas would be needed? If you don't hold back enough gas, the cheap stuff disappears real fast, and then what, another reserve? This would be like buying a house and the government forcing you to give one room away. Is limiting gas reserves even an effective long-term solution? Frank Calabria, CEO of Origin Energy, recently claimed that gas for days and weeks would replace the output of New South Wales' giant 2,800-megawatt Araring coal-fired power station. As renewable energy through wind and solar grows, what we will have is um, peaking gas plants. They'll operate over days and weeks when you need that peak capacity to protect the system and to be reliable. So you can see that curtailing export to lower domestic gas prices by redirecting export gas to local consumers might work for a short while. The increased demand on the low-cost gas would quickly see that low-cost gas disappear. And soon enough, prices go up and we're back to where we started with the activists again chasing arbitrary targets. Now, has anyone noticed the irony of lobbying to increase domestic gas availability while clamouring for the end of fossil fuels altogether? Now, if you're, anyone out there is looking for data on this stuff, there's, there's plenty of places. You've got the Australian Energy Market Operator, Gas Statement of Opportunities, the Electrical Statement of Opportunities. You have the Australian Energy Regulators Wholesale Statistics. You've got AMO's Gas Bulletin Board. You've got the ISP. Uh, and you also have what's called the Gas Supply and System Adequacy Risks Report, uh, which is partly AMO and partly government. You step through all these reports. You've also got a Victorian Planning Report. You've got a Gas Transmission Report and similar for New South Wales. And you soon find that these shortages, especially in winter, which is when the Victorian gas demand increases the most, there's shortages being discussed for several years now, uh, looking at around about 2023 as one of the worst cases. So 2023 is rapidly approaching, and do we have any more gas supply? No. Narrabri in New South Wales will supply about 200 TJs into the domestic market, which is about the same as capacity as Moomba, uh, but 200 TJs per day is around about the, the LNG, what the LNG exporters are pulling out of the domestic market to make up their contracts. And so that's the link there. But if you add in increased gas generation, gas-fired generation, consuming more gas, and you add in the declines of the southern gas fields, mostly Bass Strait, which is pulling into Longford, there's, there's no making up those shortfalls anytime soon. And this is where we get into discussions of importing gas from overseas, LNG imports. Now, many people will say that it's absolute madness to have LNG imports in a country with some of the largest gas reserves in the world. Uh, and that's a, that's a fair point, to be honest. But when you look at the numbers, unless Australia starts developing more gas and 
excess gas, which overwhelms the capacity of the LNG plants and is enough to fill up the storages and supply enough gas to increase gas-fired generation, well, we're going to run out of gas. That's literally going to happen. Tim Buckley is a renewables lobbyist and, in my opinion, has little care for the national interest. He's very keen to get higher taxes out of the resources sector, which is just one of the many strategies the global renewable and climate lobby are successfully utilising to curb investment in fossil fuels. Here he is on Sky News pushing his high taxes mantra. The fossil fuel industry, the mining industry, has had a diesel fuel rebate. That rebate costs Australia's government seven to nine billion dollars a year. If Mr Buckley was more interested in facts than activism, he could research a little bit further and he'd find on the Parliament of Australia website from 3rd of May 2012 a post about fuel tax credits are they a subsidy to fuel use. And I'll read out a couple of sections here. The excise on petrol and diesel is a tax on business inputs as well as on final use by households. Businesses using petrol and diesel as inputs into production processes pay excise of 38 cents per litre. Under the fuel tax credit scheme, eligible businesses can claim a rebate of the excise that they have paid. So you can see it's not a subsidy to the fossil fuel industry to give businesses a rebate on the inputs on the cost of doing business. As the piece continues, the fuel tax credit scheme is designed to relieve industries of the excise that they pay on the petrol and diesel they use. As Treasury notes, fuel tax credits are not a subsidy for fuel use, but a mechanism to reduce or remove the incidence of excise or duty levied on the fuel used by the businesses off-road or on heavy on-road vehicles. So not just the mining industry, Mr Buckley. The piece concludes like this. In summary, the rebate for excise paid on fuel that eligible businesses use as inputs is not a subsidy to fuel use. Rather, the rebate is designed to relieve businesses of input taxes that can reduce output and living standards. The Productivity Commission does not consider the rebate to be a form of assistance. Now, what is very, very clear that in Western Australia, there is a gas reservation there has been now for a couple of decades, and that is insulating Western Australians from the rampant global hyperinflation in oil, gas and coal prices. Mr Buckley now insists that a gas reserve scheme on the Queensland exporters is the one of the panaceas to these problems that we're seeing. I disagree. The Western Australian domestic gas reserve is a cost on producers built into every gas project from inception. Production targets, facilities, pipelines and export contracts factor in the reserve before any contracts are signed and any facilities are built. Having a reserve in place before development begins actually increases the overall gas supply. Curtailing Queensland's exports after these contracts are signed and the facilities are built will have the opposite effect. It will reduce the overall supply of gas. Curtailing the Queensland exporters will ensure that gas supply cannot ever meet demand. The sensible solution is more gas production, enough to exceed demand from international and domestic users, thus breaking the cycle of energy scarcity. Now we see the folly of, Vic of Victoria and New South Wales banning and stalling gas development over the last decade. More gas production means more jobs, more royalties and lower prices. A reserve means continuing the cycle of scarcity. Those consortia have ramped the price up for gas on the East Coast tenfold 
a thousand percent in the last two, three, four, five years, and we are now paying above export price parity. And now it seems like he's just making up numbers. Here's some real numbers from the ACCC's gas inquiry July 2022 interim report. The domestic East Coast gas market uses a relatively small proportion of the total East Coast gas production each year. For 2023, AMO forecasts that domestic East Coast gas demand will be around 571 petajoules, requiring approximately 29% of all the gas expected to produce for the year. However, if all the excess gas of LNG exporters is sold in overseas markets, then the domestic East Coast gas market is likely to be 56 petajoules short of gas needed to meet forecast demand for 2023. This is a worse situation than that which occurred in 2017, when both the ACCC and AMO predicted a shortfall of gas for the following year, and which led to the Australian government at that time commencing the Australian domestic gas security mechanism, ultimately entering into a heads of agreement with LNG exporters. The report continues. To address the projected shortfall in 2023, significant additional volumes of gas will need to be a. Produced in the East Coast from gas fields that are already connected to the market b. Produced in the Northern Territory and transported via the Northern Gas Pipeline into the East Coast c. Withdrawn from storage and or d. Diverted by LNG exporters into the domestic market So you can see that the gas situation in Eastern Australia is an extensive problem and ranting and raving about domestic reserves and adding additional levies to the gas exporters is certainly not helping. I think you need drastic response. So we're actually recommending a export only levy on East Coast gas for the objective of reducing immediately the price that domestic users of gas would pay. So you put the export, le the levy only on exports, you put it on with immediate effect and the domestic East Coast gas price would drop immediately to the extent of the levy because the cartel would actually sure. therefore have a financial incentive to service domestic users first and export the surplus. If Mr Buckley had read the ACCC report and was interested in providing an honest uh, take on the East Coast gas situation, he'd realise that they've said even the excess gas available beyond the contracts is not enough to overcome the shortfall. What do you propose then, Mr Buckley? Dip into these export contracts? The government should buy it back? Nationalise it? No. The only possible solution is more supply. Keith Pitt again on Sky News making some sense of the situation. Our strategy was to increase supply to ensure we have connectivity, particularly from the big supporting states like Queensland and potentially the Northern Territory. Labor's position is to cut that support, cut the potential for more supply from the Beetaloo, cut the potential for more infrastructure to deliver gas. Mm. I mean, if Narrabri had been brought on, if the Beetaloo was brought on earlier, as was our strategy, I mean, it was held up by the Environmental Defender's Office for a year. And what has Federal Labor done? They have funded them to take on more resource projects to try and get them stopped to the tune of $2.6 million a year. So Labor can't have it both ways. If you want more gas and lower prices, well, you need more gas and lower prices. A phenomenon occurred in the US last week. A piece published in The Atlantic raised the topic of an amnesty for those who had clamoured for lockdowns, masks and vaccine mandates. As people wake from their dangerous COVID nuttiness, some soul-searching is occurring amongst those who yelled loudest. US commentator Dave Rubin introduces it well. There was an article in The Atlantic that went viral for all the wrong reasons uh, over the last couple of days. Now, The Atlantic, which used to be a somewhat kind of center-right, sane place of journalism, let's call it. It was a, it was a place of extended uh, interviews and thoughtful pieces. 
Uh, it really has gone off the deep end and into a lot of trash. But there was a really interesting article, a uh, piece that came out called Let's Declare Pandemic Amnesty uh, by an author named Emily Oster. And this thing was going viral over the last couple of days because it was getting a tremendous amount of pushback from, I would say, people like me who actually did not lose their minds during COVID. People like you who probably did not lose their minds during COVID. And now that it is coming out that the vaccines don't work, the booster shots don't work, the masks didn't work, the lockdowns didn't work, there's all sorts of issues, uh, people having health issues post getting the vaccine, all of the issues related to young children who are speaking later and having problems socializing, all of the stuff that you guys know about. Well, now that it's all being exposed, there's a certain set of people who, have, who were demanding mandates, demanding lockdowns, doing all the bad stuff, right? Pushing you in ways you didn't want to be pushed, infringing on your free speech and right to assembly and all of those things and right to work and, and make a living and make choices for yourself and have bodily autonomy. Well, now that they are losing the narrative, uh, they want amnesty. And that's very bizarre because do they deserve it? That's really the question. So I got a little bit from the, from the article and then we'll dive in more. At its peak, the COVID lockdown crowd started talking about climate and health, linking emergencies in one to lockdowns in the other. I don't think we've seen the end of that amongst the climate lockdown crowd, to be honest. I think that lot are taking a breath before they launch again. They have enough going on with all the government announcements to keep them busy crowing and preening about their success. It's impossible to avoid the cloying sense of moral superiority exuded by the climate and renewables lobby. It extends into social media, newspapers and television. I don't think they even know they're doing it. Take Simon Holmes a court. The bloke seems to be capable of delivering. Examples are the Teals and the Open NEM Data Visualization Project, although I'm not sure how deep his involvement was in that. Here he is on the ABC's Q&A earlier this year. What, what is Glasgow about? It's not about net zero. Glasgow is about the Paris Agreement, and the Paris Agreement is about keeping global warming to less than two degrees, well less than the two degrees, preferably 1.5. And if we don't manage to do that, we may as well say goodbye to the reef. The unprecedented fire events that we've had recently will become every other year, and large parts of Australia will become both uninsurable and unlivable. So Glasgow is about the Paris Agreement, not about net zero. Holmes Accord is one of Australia's most recognisable renewable lobbyists. He was interviewed recently on ABC Radio as a rebuttal to nuclear activist Zeon Leitz's recent comments. The much bigger issue, rather than culture wars about are you anti-nuclear or pro-nuclear, I think we should put all of that aside. Well, Simon, to anyone who's ever come across you on social media and who manages to get on your bad side, which is not very hard. All you've got to do is show you some facts about some emissions or some costs. How about you put aside your biases, Simon, for a change? There are a lot of people who always um, cry out as chicken little and people who will be receptive to those who are afraid of change. But the, um, the energy transition continues at an accelerating pace. Holmes Court was also asked about the reports coming out about the extent of raw materials required to complete this net zero transition. I, I think I have I've seen that presentation um, that you know, people who 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 don't want to uh, the, the, who want to stop the energy transition have highlighted that uh, a talk from his in, a lot in recent recent months. Holmes Accord is just one example of these people whose beliefs are uncowed by evidence. Their belief system doesn't require any updates or adjusting to new information. Their opinions are fully formed and impervious to challenge. This is literally whether we live or die, whether or not life can be sustained 
on the planet and whether or not the level of prosperity that I have enjoyed, that Adam has enjoyed, that we hope to bequeath to our kids, continues. Catherine Murphy there is the editor of The Guardian, a media outlet favoured by the Greens, Teals, Labor and anybody else you can imagine who might consider the odd climate lockdown a great idea. I'm sure you'll recognise the similarities between the climate crowd and the COVID crowd. Catherine Murphy might reach out to Alex Epstein and interview him on her podcast. Here's Alex in a debate at Texas University this week, discussing what the consequences of net zero policies actually mean. I was born in 1980. When I was born, 42% of the people lived on less than $2 a day. Now it's about 10%. So we've had this incredible drop in extreme poverty centered in China and India. They more than quintupled their use of fossil fuels to use machines to become productive and prosperous. That is the model. Country after country after country that has actually risen out of poverty has used fossil fuels. So what's happening now is the net zero movement is not offering new exciting alternatives. It's saying, don't do this. It's telling countries, do not fund people. It's, it's trying to actively discourage Africa, poor parts of Asia, poor parts of South America from using fossil fuels. So this is the key. This net zero by 2050 is deliberately starving poor people of energy, and it is deeply immoral. And I think everyone needs to distance themselves from it and recognize that countless people have died and countless people are suffering because we're preventing people from using the best option. Worse than that. They'd describe it as necessary and be the driving force trying to swing public opinion behind it. If public opinion doesn't go that way, then the weight of political opinion will do. It's even preferable. So one wonders that as the years drag on, and the climate war inexorably claims its victims, eventually the public will come to realise that the never-ending claims of extinction just around the corner somehow never gets any closer. When the massive public spending and higher taxes to almost pay for it is never enough. When the glaciers, the sea level, the ocean pH, the corals, the polar bears, the rain, the floods, the droughts. When it doesn't get any worse, it just changes. When enough people get to this position, will there be a call of amnesty for the renewables pushes? Will those of us who speak up, fighting lies with facts, fighting obfuscation with clean analogies, will we be able to forgive the fear mongers and the weak-willed, the ignorant and the calculated grifters? I hope so, I really do. I really don't want anybody to be left with a feelings displayed here by Julia Zamiro. If you see me on the street, please come up to me and let's chat. I always think of Greta Thunberg's line, the magnificent Greta, when she was still a child saying, I don't want your hope. I want your panic. You have my panic and I'm listening because if we don't listen, come Armageddon. When the earth is scorched, the climate wars have begun. And it's not a film or a Netflix TV series. It's real. And we've got no electricity or internet. We can only come out in the relative cool of the night, bleary-eyed, sitting in a circle. Who will keep us entertained? Who will we look to? Or rather, who will we look to to make us feel and dance and laugh and sing and remember? It will be the artists. And if it happens tomorrow and, say, Scott Morrison or Barnaby Joyce come to watch my apocalyptic show will be full they'll be turned away because they could have done so much with the position they have and they have done so little thank you oh jay-z wow wow yeah you can't hear that's what people at home are doing they go thanks for listening we'll be back in a week in the meantime if you like the podcast hit the like button subscribe tell your friends